There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Okumbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. How can descendants of slave owners atone for the sins of their ancestors? This is the question we'll be tackling in this week's episode of The Weekend Intelligence. It's incredibly complex, and our correspondent explains why. And he was the world's first bungee jumper, dedicating his life to the pursuit of the thrilling. Our obituaries editor pays tribute to David Kirk, the founder of the Dangerous Sports Club. First up, though. Is China gearing up for an invasion of Taiwan? For some time now, its military, the People's Liberation Army, or the PLA, has been expanding its operations around the self-governing island. American military commanders have warned that an attack could be imminent. But here's another question. How battle-ready is China anyway? China hasn't actually fought a war since one with Vietnam back in 1979, and it didn't do that well then. The Vietnamese managed to repel the Chinese invasion, And in the years since, the PLA's most deadly engagement was with their own countrymen in the massacre of pro-democracy protesters in Beijing in 1989. Jeremy Page is The Economist's Asia diplomatic editor. Xi Jinping often uses the term peace disease to describe the lax internal culture that's developed in the PLA through decades without fighting. But that's just one of the many obstacles facing the PLA if China wants to be confident of a victory in a war over Taiwan. Okay, so they may have peace disease and not be very well-versed in active combat, but they have one of the biggest armies in the world still. Yes, it is true that China boasts the world's biggest army and navy, its third largest air force, and it's now got one of its most potent arsenals of conventional missiles. Russia and America each have more than 10 times as many nuclear warheads, but China is modernizing its stockpile rapidly. But as we've learned in Ukraine, size does not always mean strength. And in a special report for The Economist this week, I've tried to break down some of the biggest challenges facing the PLA. Now, we're not trying to portray the PLA as a paper tiger. The threat it poses is very real, especially to Taiwan. What we're hoping to do is to provide a bit of balance to a public discussion on a subject that sometimes seems to echo the more paranoid periods of the Cold War and might risk replicating some of that era's mistakes. What are the biggest challenges you found in your special report? The lack of combat experience is a real problem, as I mentioned earlier. Just to illustrate the point, 
Back in 2016, there was a PLA infantry unit in South Sudan on UN peacekeeping duty. And it was tasked with protecting a couple of camps of civilians. And when rebels and government forces clashed nearby, those camps came under fire. And the Chinese troops took refuge and uh, tragically a rocket-propelled grenade hit one of their vehicles, killing two of them. Now, the Chinese government portrayed this as evidence that it was acting like a great power, shouldering responsibilities in the world's trouble spots. But to the PLA's commanders, it highlighted their almost complete lack of combat experience. There are other legacy issues as well, though, like a really convoluted command structure, inadequate logistics. And now there are some fresh challenges, including lessons from the war in Ukraine, America's recent curbs on tech exports to China, and a shortage of technologically skilled recruits. Jeremy, tell me a bit more about those legacy challenges, the convoluted command structure, the logistical issues. So the PLA was built on a sort of Soviet model. And up until around 2016, 2017, it still had those Soviet-era structures where inefficiency and corruption were pretty rife. I remember as recently as 2012, just before Xi Jinping took power, you'd regularly see luxury cars, Porsches, Jaguars with PLA license plates cruising around Beijing and Shanghai. You also have a command structure that is designed to guarantee the Communist Party's control over the PLA. It is, in fact, the party army. It's not a national army. And one way that they enforce that is through having party committees throughout the PLA and political officers, often called commissars, who technically have the same rank as operational commanders, but actually lead those party committees and so in many ways have greater authority. And there's a lot of tension between them and the operational commanders, especially when you're dealing with frontline combat units. Now, another big issue for the PLA is logistics. This is something that a former Taiwanese admiral called China's soft spot when it comes to a potential invasion of Taiwan. The logistics of pulling off that invasion are incredibly daunting. By some estimates, it would require more supplies, more vehicles, more ships and planes than even the D-Day landings. And you also mentioned a lack of recruits. Jeremy, how is China, the most populous country in the world, struggling with numbers? I think the first point to make is that it's not about numbers, it's about quality now. It doesn't have enough technologically skilled recruits to operate all of that modern equipment. China has a lot of unique factors which contribute to its problems, in particular the one-child policy, which created a whole generation of mostly only children with very protective parents. One thing that we saw recently, which was really interesting, was the Chinese Navy started trying to recruit aircraft carrier pilots at Tsinghua and other leading civilian universities. The Navy said women could apply for the first time too. And then a bit later in the year, it raised the maximum age for postgraduates to 26. So all of that suggests that they are really struggling to find enough people with the skills they need to operate sophisticated weapons platforms like fighter jets on aircraft carriers. Part of the problem is that those who have the requisite skills are choosing higher paid jobs in industry or in many cases going abroad. There's also a pretty high turnover rate. But emphasis on political education is also a real burden. It's estimated that it can take up to a quarter of PLA personnel's time at the moment. How is China trying to sort out this host of glaring problems? So since 
2016, Xi Jinping has launched the most ambitious reform of the PLA in more than six decades. But those reforms, which are supposed to take five years, are taking longer than expected. His crackdown on corruption also seems to have fallen short, judging by the sacking of China's defence minister and uh, two other very senior generals earlier this year. And part of the problem seems to be that he's doing this in an authoritarian system that really discourages reporting problems to the top. So it's important to emphasize again, we're not saying the PLA is a paper tiger. Underestimating it would be very dangerous, but overestimating it would be too. Like in the Cold War, there is a risk that doing so could breed a sense of mutual insecurity and unnecessary confrontation. And the other risk is that by amplifying Xi Jinping's military threats, especially towards Taiwan, you might discourage some world leaders from confronting him when they should. If we think back to 2014, that's partly what allowed Russia to annex much of Ukraine. So going forward, I think the imperative for all sides is to have a ruthlessly balanced view of the PLA's strengths and its weaknesses. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And the likelihood of an invasion of Taiwan is the theme of this week's episode of Drum Tower, our podcast on all things China, available now to Economist Podcast Plus subscribers. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. By now, you will have heard me talk about our new sister show on Economist Podcast Plus many times. It's called The Weekend Intelligence. It's our chance to broaden our horizons and go deeper into the stories that matter. If you're a subscriber, you will have been able to listen to the first two episodes already about building on the moon and the heartbreak of experiencing IVF. Well, this Saturday's show is one you won't want to miss. It's called The Apology, A Journey to Absolution. The show explores the lasting impacts of one of the most heinous crimes against humanity, chattel slavery. A system in which people were treated as property that could be bought, sold and willed to others. It asks if the descendants of those who profited from the slave trade have a responsibility to atone for their ancestors' crimes today. Our reporter, Charlie McCann, has been reporting on a story for our narrative magazine, 1843. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Ori. Great to be with you. Now, I've heard the show and I have lots of questions, but first up, tell me a bit about your reporting. Yeah, so back in May, I met a man named Charlie Gladstone. Three years ago, he and his family learned that their ancestor, Charlie's 
three times great-grandfather, had enslaved thousands of people in Guyana and Jamaica. And they also learned that at the abolition of slavery, he had been paid over 100,000 pounds in compensation for his loss. They feel a sense of responsibility for this ancestor. So what did Charlie and his family decide to do about that? So they had a couple of choices, right? They could either sweep this knowledge under the carpet or try to atone for it directly. And so the family were introduced to the head of Guyana's reparations committee. He invited them to come to Guyana to meet local people, to see the legacy of slavery, and to see how their ancestors' actions continue to impact the country. The Gladstones decided they wanted to go there to apologize for those actions. And I was invited to go along with them. So how was the trip? Tell us a bit about what listeners can expect to hear. It was a really intense five-day trip for the Gladstons. And my producer Rory and I shadowed them the entire time. We got a crash course in Afro-Guyanese culture. We went to church services, we sang Bob Marley songs. We met the Prime Minister. I thank you for taking this bold step. And even attended an ancestral forgiveness ceremony. And we take listeners inside the room as the Gladstons meet some of the descendants of the enslaved people their ancestors owned. This is something that rarely happens in a lifetime. And I think most importantly, we talk to Guyanese people. They're still in a mental slavery. Too many of us might settle for less than we are. And we ask them about the value of an apology coming from people so distantly connected with the crime that shaped their lives. What prompted you to focus on this now? It's increasingly part of the national conversation in both the UK and the US. There's a small but growing group of descendants of slaveholders who are coming forward and apologizing, and there is growing pressure on governments that sanction slavery in their former colonies to do the same. So the Netherlands has recently apologized for its role in slavery. The British government has not. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak recently said in Parliament that is not a priority for his government. Trying to unpick our history is not the right way forward and it's not something that we will focus our energies on. But there is growing pressure on these countries to apologise. And people are demanding more than just an apology. They want reparations. That's payments to make up for the exploitation, the violence and the trauma that many enslaved generations and their ancestors went through. Yeah, it's a thorny question, one that we explore in depth in the podcast. You know, we ask, will reparations ever happen? If so, how would they be structured? I'll say now, Ori, we don't have easy answers, but I think it's an issue that's not going away anytime soon. And having been to Guyana and seen how it's still struggling to overcome the lasting consequences of slavery and colonialism, I can see why the Guyanese and why other Caribbean countries are demanding reparations. Of course, I'll let listeners draw their own conclusions about this very difficult subject. The thing is, the more historians dig into the history of slavery, the more we discover and the more we will discover that many white people in this country and in America have past links to slavery. Do you think that makes everyone culpable? 
I certainly think that societies that sanctioned and engaged in the slave trade are culpable. And I think that in countries like the UK, where for so long there's been this cultural amnesia about the country's participation in slavery, there's a growing awareness that it's not just big elite families that have these links to the slave trade. It's ordinary people. You know, research shows that 40,000 British beneficiaries of the slave trade were compensated when it was abolished. Just think through how many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren they have today. And it's something that I personally relate to strongly as I reveal on the podcast. Charlie's story isn't my story, but it is something that I can personally relate to. I'm also descended from slave owners. My family had a plantation in what is now Virginia wine country, just a few hours' drive from Washington, D.C. By the early 1800s, my ancestors enslaved more than 100 people. Charlie, why did you decide to do this? Well, I think as a reporter, you're always reluctant to insert yourself into the story. But what I realized as I began digging into this story was that as the Gladstons were preparing for this trip, I was asking myself many of the questions that they were asking themselves. How should I feel about this history? Should I feel guilty? Have I benefited in any way from the wealth generated by my family's plantation? So in some ways, I understood what the Gladstons were going through, and it struck me that many listeners may well be asking themselves the same questions. So, you know, I think it's a conversation that's really well worth having. Well, I've listened, and I can tell you it's an intense and complex journey. Listeners can hear the show as an Economist or Economist Podcast Plus subscriber on Saturday. That's right. It's called The Apology, A Journey to Absolution. Thank you for coming on to tell us all about it, Charlie. Thank you, Ori. April the 1st, 1979, All Fool's Day, was a momentous day in the history of mankind. For this was when a man first jumped off an extremely high bridge held on only by a piece of elastic rope. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. The invitations had gone out to bungee jumping from the Clifton Suspension Bridge at dawn on that day, and morning dress was to be worn at top hat and tails. It very nearly didn't happen at all because the police were alerted by the sisters of one of the jumpers, and they staked out the bridge. But when they saw these people on it and were told that nobody would be fool enough to jump from such a bridge, and it was only an April Fool, the police went back to their cars and the chaps jumped off the bridge. The first to go was David Kirk. He was the founder of the Dangerous Sports Club in Oxford, which was dedicated to doing fun and silly and very dangerous things because he was fed up with the dullness of ordinary formal sports. The police were soon nabbing them, of course. And they took them to the cells for a night and made them promise that they would never do it again. But 
They did it all over the place, largely in the west of America, at the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco and at a bridge in Colorado, the Royal Gorge. And this became a worldwide craze. David Kirk founded the Dangerous Sports Club because he was a fairly reckless individual and he simply enjoyed danger. His father had had the same taste. He had been a climber of the Alps and also a man who scaled the spires and roofs of Cambridge when he was a student. So his father had set an example of doing daring things. And David Kirk simply decided he couldn't bear the hide-bound, rule-bound way that usual sports were played. He was going to do something entirely different. So bungee jumping was only one of the things that he invented. Another idea of his was cluster ballooning. And he pioneered that by taking a giant inflatable kangaroo called Hopalong over from England to France, reaching a height of 10,000 feet. It was held aloft by four helium balloons. And at 10,000 feet, it encountered a jumbo jet, the pilot of which had to take evasive action. Another boring sport that Mr. Kirk took under his wing was skiing. He decided that was quite tedious, but on the other hand, he could put on a show he called Surreal Skiing. The dangerous sports club would go to St. Moritz and go down the slopes on as bizarre a conveyance as they could find. An ironing board, a roundabout horse, a tandem, a fully crewed boat, a grand piano, a Louis XV dining suite, They even had a desert island made out of polystyrene with a palm tree, and they took that down. And the local authorities in St. Moritz were quite kind about all this. In fact, it brought in quite a lot of tourists until the Dangerous Sports Club brought in a double-decker London bus, and they decided then to draw the line. They kept this going for numbers of years. And gradually, of course, they began to get middle-aged and not want to hazard their bodies so much anymore. So people slipped away from the dangerous sports club. But he was a man who managed to live on his friend's bank accounts and he was such an entertaining companion that they didn't complain too much. He still believed, too, as he got older, that the dangerous sports club was still continuing in obscure parts of the world. He said that Jesuit missionaries were helping his cause in China, for example. And he was also very busy in his later years writing a huge biography of himself and a memoir of the club. And he stacked his council flat in Oxford with pages and pages of accounts and photos of what they had got up to. He was very glad that he had set up The whole thing, it hadn't made him fame or fortune, really. He was only known to those who followed him in the general craziness. But he was very firm that this had not really been craziness, that it was much madder to live a humdrum life given the state of the world. He had consciously put his bungee jumping and all the other exciting different sports up as a contrast to the dullness and the bleakness of the Thatcher years. 
He believed it was a political movement and it was a philosophical movement. The most pleasing philosophy concerned with it was that you could prove you could jump off an extraordinary height and it was possible to bounce back, although you might be in fear and dread of meeting the man upstairs, as he called him. In fact, you could cheat death, and your elastic would haul you up. And it wasn't just he who could do this. He wanted to spread the optimistic idea that anybody could bounce back. There were some who would look on this and, and think that you must be mad. I don't think so. I mean, that's what they said about everybody before they tried something silly. Uh, this is just a, a minor new innovation, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, Marconi's relatives tried to lock him up because he said voices could go through the air and now look at you and look at me, you know. Anne Rowe on David Kirk, who has died aged 78. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with assistance from Timo Saylor. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Khadifa. And our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Benji Guy and Emily Elias. And I'll see you tomorrow for our weekend edition. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.